Conclusion Nihilism Resolved Now then, monks, I exhort you. All fabrications are subject to ending and decay. Reach consummation through heedfulness. That was the Tathagata's last statement. Diga Nikaya 16 Nihilism is, in its essence, the most abstracted and universalized manifestation of libidinal frustration. Like sexuality, the desire for higher meaning and purpose is born out of a desire to, in a sense, be granted a second life. This life and all the meaning that is manifest within it is ignored as we search for a second, metaphysically parallel existence that will somehow be more true and more justified. The meaning we experience in this life is somehow not enough. We yearn for that meaning to be itself made meaningful by another layer of meaning that is imagined to, in some way not ever fully articulated, grant this thus given existence a fuller depth of justification. The baseline insufficiency of life is betrayed in every mental impulse towards making it into something more than it is. And nihilism, though it recognizes the absurdity of any multi-level meaning structure, still languishes in bemoaning the manifest lack of deeper telos. Like all other manifestations of sexual frustration, if it were not such a serious and fundamental problem, one might describe the spiritual insecurity of nihilism as rather cringe. In fact, feeling into the cringe that is characteristic of the emotions of embarrassment and shame can be a highly instructive contemplation. Specifically, consider the actions and attitudes that lead to cringy behavior. In every embarrassing thing we have ever done, there is always, either directly in the action itself or the self-conscious attitude we might layer on top of the situation in question, some aspect of insufficiency and insecurity. The sun, the sky, a mountain or the ocean are, in their horrific immensity and implacable indifference, immune to embarrassment. Our slimy human sensuality and passion in all their myriad forms, from hatred, defensiveness, and aversion to lust, social neediness, and greed, always lie at the heart of our shame. In this recognition, we may find common ground with Nietzsche as he exhorts us towards surpassing our shamefulness. What is the ape to man 
a laughingstock, a thing of shame. And just the same shall man be to the ubermensch, a laughingstock, a thing of shame. In casting sensuality aside, it is only an arahant, a fully awakened being that has put behind her shame and has joined those forces of nature in becoming something more. Or, perhaps, something less. Such an overcoming cannot be done on a whim. Letting go is unfortunately a process just as unownable as the rest of our lives, though it is several degrees more controllable. And it will run counter to almost every psychic habit that we have previously accumulated for an indeterminate amount of time. Practicing the Tama can at times feel incredibly Kafka-esque. Deciphering and implementing the instructions of ancient texts of unverifiable validity that were the product of organic, repetitive oral transmission, modification, and expansion in order to somehow resolve a problem that you don't even fully understand and yet has the most immediate and pressing relationship with your perpetually treacherous and stressful existential situation is not a project for the faint of heart. If you do not feel threatened and ripped apart by the letting go process, if the pressure of restraint and endurance and doubt and some vega does not bring you to tears multiple times, then you're probably not doing it right. Everything you think you are and everything you hold dear needs to go, and the process of abandonment will very probably take years. It is only an eagle-eyed commitment to the truth, an uncompromising lion-heartedness the burning fire of Samvega and a totalized disenchantment with all other possible modes of life that will provide the necessary strength and motivation to keep trudging forward through the muck of your own mind. There is no other way. There is no escape from this. The cost of knowledge beyond the corrosion of doubt, the cost of transcendental nobility, and the cost of salvation from Dukkha is, quite simply, everything you have. But such a price, in comparison to the alternative, is not all that bad. There is a tremendous amount of sustained, all-encompassing happiness that awaits in the cool waters of composure and contentment. Once you have tied the wild animal that is your mind to the post of discipline and mindfulness, the pangs of craving will eventually, inevitably, begin to subside. Just resting in the knowledge that enduring the pressure of restraint 
is pretty much 90% of the work can be incredibly liberating in and of itself and, dare I suggest it, kind of fun. Like a toddler flailing and contorting his body all over the floor in a tantrum, watching the mind twist itself into every and any possible outlet and justification for gratification can actually be incredibly entertaining when taken with a good bit of humor. Like a good parent disciplining that toddler, all you really need to do is have some patience and wait for the little scamp to tire himself out before he will inevitably come to accept your boundaries and begin to behave within the constraints of decency and good sense. After a while, the secluded, unburdened lifestyle of an arahant will simply become your preferred way to live. The scalding, burning passion of sex, drugs, and rock and roll will eventually stop holding any appeal at all. Indeed, the thought of returning to such things will start to make you feel just a bit nauseous. The karma of this lifestyle of restraint is what the Buddha called the karma that leads to the end of karma. I think it's relatively obvious to everyone that, in general, and for a wide variety of intersecting reasons, more good things happen to people who are disciplined, hardworking, considerate, kind, and generous. At the very least, such people avoid all the additional misery that befalls the stupidity of acting in ways oppositional to virtue. In a mundane sense, this is pretty much the total extent to which an understanding of karma needs to be taken. But going deeper into a life of renunciation, we can begin to discern directly what it means to be putting an end to karma. By engaging in sensuality, we build and contribute to an ongoing narrative that is directed and colored by our habitual intentions and perceptions of identity. The more subtle, the more aloof and composed those intentions and identities become, the more translucent, airy, and simple the narrative grows. Narrative requires character and drama, but if you just throw out the script and tell all the actors to just sit quietly on the stage, the show necessarily starts to fall apart. There will be hecklers in the audience that will boo and throw things and pressure you to restart the show, but eventually they'll get bored and leave the theater, abandoning you to finally have some peace and quiet. A subtle identity built around the peaceful lightness of a mind well-tamed will emerge in the heckler's place, but so long as even the subtlest forms of sensuality are rejected, that considerate audience member will eventually leave as well. 
The fire of sensuality requires the energy you willfully give it through your ontological appropriation of the world in order to keep burning. And once all the energy is starved out through mindfulness, restraint, and authentic understanding, the theater will fade to black for the last time. This is freedom from freedom. And what the Buddha referred to as the cessation of the world. Reverend, I say it's not possible to know or see or reach the end of the world by traveling to a place where there's no being born, growing old, dying, passing away, or being reborn. But I also say there's no making an end of suffering without reaching the end of the world. For it is in this fathom-long carcass, with its perception and mind, that I describe the world, its origin, its cessation, and the practice that leads to its cessation. With unflinching commitment to the truth, and properly directed effort, the knowledge gained through both the practical and intellectual study of the Tama will eventually begin to metabolize into wisdom. Wisdom will, and by its nature, must affect an image ground reversal. The inquiry is turned on itself, and the bounds of the problem are finally delimited when you go to the ends of the world you will be met with a stunning accusatory silence the silence the void at the heart of existence will not yield to criticism or scrutiny it will gently embarrass you for having ever expected to find anything of value anywhere else. For those other avenues would, could, only ever lead back to the silence. This truth is discerned. In the silence, there is the end of transvaluation. And there is only a single question it will answer. Approaching, humbled, one may ask, How do I stop suffering? The silence will respond. Sit down and let me kill you. This is not a mystical vision. This is not an incomprehensible, indescribable feeling. In the heart of the Buddhist ruins, there is simply nothing less than the most profound exegesis of the human condition that has ever been expressed. I owe 
everything that I have written in this book to a precious treasure that I found in the most unexpected of places. I never would have expected to write a book like this. I did everything I possibly could to not write this book. I pounded away at every nook and cranny, pursued every avenue of criticism and doubt I could think of to discredit these teachings, to expose the Buddha as a fraud and a fool. But the only fool that was ever exposed through that entire process was myself. I didn't want to do any of this, but what I needed to do was to be sure. I needed to be sure that there was no other way. Certainty and security are not things that you will ever find anywhere in the world. But those questions for which there are no final answers are also those questions that do not ultimately need answering. I exhort you, keep throwing out everything that is irrelevant and uncertain until an answer bursts forth from your own heart, covering heaven and earth. Time is short. The tools are there, available to be put to use. Or are you still willing to resign yourself to life as you assume it must be? Are you willing to gamble your life on the meek, cowering, pathetic position on nihilism and suffering taken by Robert Rosen as he writes? The truth is that instead of solving all his problems and thereby incurring the disaster of a final solution, man must reconcile himself to a perpetual process of approximations of prudential adjustments and accommodations, sometimes in the direction of daring, sometimes in the direction of caution. Is that really all your life is worth to you? An accommodation? The days and nights fly past. Death is coming. Stare long enough into the void, and you may find yourself prepared to meet it. Epilogue. Further resources. For those who resonate with the approach to Tama presented in this book, an approach we may call existential Buddhism, I can recommend no teacher more highly 
than Achan Nyanamoli Taro. A very large collection of Achan Nyanamoli's Tama talks are posted on the YouTube channel Hillside Hermitage, with new talks being added on a consistent basis. Together with the community that he leads, Achan Nyanamoli has expounded in both his talks and writings a radical, penetrating, and comprehensive guide to living the holy life that leads beyond merely coping. For a more mainstream early Buddhist Theravada perspective than Venerable Nyanamoli, in the English language there is perhaps no more accessible, prolific, and eminent figure than Tanisaro Piku. Pra Ajan Jeff has published dozens of books and essays on every facet of the Tama, from absolute beginner introductions to in-depth philosophical essays, all available absolutely free on the Tama Talks website. Ajahn Jeff has also recorded and uploaded hundreds of audio Tama Talks, with more added all the time. If there is any particular aspect of the Tama you would like to research and learn more about, Ajahn Jeff has almost certainly given a talk about it and probably has also written multiple essays and published an anthology of discourses from the Pali Canon that address the very topic you are interested in, all translated himself. I highly recommend reading his Pali discourse anthologies as a means of immersing yourself into a broader familiarity with the suttas. Ajahn Chef is also perhaps the foremost Western expert on the Vinaya, the Buddhist monastic code. Tanisaro Piku is a titan of Tama in the English-speaking world. Piku Sujato is no less prolific than Tanisaro Piku, though is more focused on translation and early Buddhist research than teaching. Sutta Central is an invaluable resource where Venerable Sujato has made available for free an English translation of almost every, if not every, single discourse in the Sutta Pitaka, the basket of discourses of the Pali Canon. Venerable Nyanavira Tara was an English Piku who was ordained in Sri Lanka in 1950. Venerable Nyanavira's Notes on Tama is probably the first and certainly the most influential text ever written on an existential, phenomenological approach to interpreting the Tama. However, Notes on Tama is also very technical and requires at least some working understanding of a wide variety of important Pali terms. Without such a background or at least some immediate access to a Pali dictionary and a good scholastic work ethic, notes on Tama will likely remain totally inscrutable. Be well and never give up.